Coming up on Money Beat, if you have ever thought to yourself that the efficient market doesn't seem very efficient, that the efficient market hypothesis is more like a fairy tale, well, you're not crazy. You're not alone. Andrew W. Lowe is the author of a new book called Adaptive Markets. He is here with us today to tell you how markets evolve, how you can adapt to evolve with them, and how you can protect yourself from the next crash. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello, everybody. This is Paul. This is Steve. Welcome to Money Beat. <laughs> Hope you're all doing well. And, you know, folks out there that listen to this podcast on a, on a regular basis, you're all financially savvy. You follow the markets. You care about the things that we care about. And maybe over the last uh, several months or years or at any point in the last uh, decades or so, you thought to yourself, you know, I hear about this efficient market hypothesis, that the markets are efficient. They don't really seem very efficient to me. Well, if you've ever thought that, you're in luck today because we have somebody who not only thought the same thing, he wrote an entire book about it. Andrew W. Lowe is the Charles E. and Susan T. Harris Professor at MIT's Sloan School of Management, joins us today and also to help us with this conversation, our good friend, Wall Street Journal columnist, Andrew Zweig. And Jason Zweig. Jason Zweig and Andrew Lowe. <laughs> I'm getting, uh, getting my... My, my guests mixed up. Sorry. Come on, adapt, Paul. I'll, I'll adapt to being a good host. Uh, Andrew W. Lowe is the author of Adaptive Markets. It will be out in May, but you can order it on Amazon right now. Jason Zweig is our Wall Street Journal columnist. Everyone, welcome. Nice job. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Can I get through that okay? You did. Okay. Um, well, 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 you know, let's start with you, Andrew, of course. Um what led to this book? You, you've obviously been involved in markets for a very long time. You clearly started thinking about the, the concepts that are in this book. You started thinking about several years ago. I, I know that there's a, a paper from at least 2011. How long have you been thinking about the, the concepts that ended up in this book? Well, you know, I probably started maybe 20 years ago and uh, was really struggling with the kind of concepts involved because I couldn't figure out how to reconcile the efficient markets hypothesis, which most economists know and love, with all of the behavioral evidence that psychologists and behavioral economists were coming up with about how irrational people were. And so this is kind of like a travelogue of my intellectual journey that brought me to the point where I felt that I could reconcile the two competing schools of thought. Hmm. Andrew, I'm... You talked earlier about how investors and markets follow more of the rules of biology than of physics. Maybe just explain to us a little more what you mean by that. Well, you know, we think about financial markets more as a physical system with specific immutable laws that we can use to forecast price changes and various kinds of risks. But in fact, it's much more complicated than physical laws, which really don't change over time. Biological laws are probably more accurate because they take into account the fact that you're dealing with you know, organic entities, things that change over time and react in ways that sometimes are unpredictable. So the laws of biology and particularly ecology and evolutionary biology actually can explain more about how financial markets change over time than any kind of physical system of uh, fixed laws. So what does evolution look like in financial markets? Well, we start with the various different species. For example, hedge funds versus pension funds, mutual funds, financial intermediaries. And we understand that each of them is striving for survival. 
if you think about that from the perspective of each of the organizations, you can understand why certain business conditions and business decisions get made over time. And as that happens, as these various different species compete with each other, you actually see the waxing and waning of strategies and financial institutions. And it gives you a much richer picture of the financial landscape and, more importantly, how it's going to change over time. Can we go back to sort of the 2007, 2008, the financial crisis, and how, I guess, first of all, the efficient market, um, you know, hypothesis sort of came up lacking in sort of explaining what happened, and how the adaptive um, market um, hypothesis sort of helps explain it uh, better? Well, you know, efficient markets hypothesis is a very important concept that uh, actually I ended up defending through the financial <laughs> crisis because many people argued that it was irrational for banks and other financial institutions to engage in these kinds of instruments. But if you take a look at the rates of return on these so-called toxic assets, they definitely priced a risk premium in there that wasn't in the safer assets. And so in one sense, the efficient markets hypothesis, the, the wisdom of crowds works very well. But over time, as investors become enamored of a particular investment, they start to make decisions not with their uh, logical faculties but with their emotional faculties. And when you start getting emotion involved in markets, the traditional relationships of risk and reward go right out the window. Either too much enthusiasm, uh, so-called irrational exuberance that Bob Schiller coined, or Perhaps the opposite, which is a deathly fear of risk when you have a flight to safety, both of those extremes ultimately cause prices to deviate from uh, fundamentals. And I think that's what we saw both before, during, and after that crisis. You know, I've, I, so I've been working as a, a business journalist for about 20 years. Uh, I, you know, so I mean, I would count my, my quote unquote market life as basically about 20 years, right? So you go back to you know, the dot-com days. And it seems to me that since the dot-com days, the markets have been anything but rational. Uh, you've had a, a boom, a bust, a boom, a bust. But, you know, all, the only rationality is that it is going to be unbelievably irrational. Why in the years before that were people wedded to this idea of, of the efficient market hypothesis? I mean, did, did it ever actually, because I got to tell you, in, in my experience, it's never actually worked. Does it, has it ever actually worked? Well, I should start by saying that all economic theories are approximations to a much more complicated reality. So from that perspective, all economic theories are wrong. The question is really how good an approximation are they? And it turns out that efficient markets was actually an excellent approximation for about five or six decades. If you take a look at the 1930s to the 1990s, actually efficient markets worked pretty well. Prices actually did reflect much of the available information, and it was pretty hard to beat a 60-40 buy and hold strategy with various different complicated active portfolios. <clears throat> but the question is whether you believe that that theory continues to work even in the current day environment when the environment has changed so much. It, typically, when the environment shifts, people will adapt. And what we're seeing now is a pretty big shift in the financial landscape. And you, you think that's a permanent shift? Well, let me put it this way. I think the shift is going to last for quite a few years, which means that we either need to adapt or we run the risk of becoming extinct in the face of this new circumstance. What is that shift? Well, there's a, a number of different changes to the financial landscape that we have to be aware of. One, 
is that technology today plays a much more important role than it did ever before. And that kind of technology can allow markets to become much more volatile at a moment's notice, and then that volatility can subside very quickly. So the volatility of volatility has changed dramatically. Second, we see that uh, large financial players like central banks have played a much more active role over the last 10 years than over the previous 40. And as a result, we now have to deal with how central banks and political agendas play into the financial market dynamics. And finally, you know, we live in a hugely connected world. You know, you go back to the 1900s. In the early 1900s, there was about one and a half billion people walking on this planet. <clears throat> as of a couple of years ago, the estimate was that we now have seven billion people. And most of those people were born without any wealth, without any financial resources that have to be developed over time. So the sheer number of financial transactions that are occurring today are just astronomically greater than ever before. That kind of complexity means that we're linked in ways that we never anticipated, and the global financial community is a re reality that we have to deal with when we think about financial stability. No, the glo I think that's a great point because that's one of the things I think we've sort of stumbled on as journalists was in the in the last you know twenty years you've seen like now you have to pay attention a lot more to what is happening across the seas, what's happening in Asia, China, which 20 years ago might not have been that important to mm -hmm. – from our standpoint, our reporting and writing on, on uh, markets. Yeah, it used to be the case that we, use, we said that when uh, the United States sneezes, uh, the Chinese financial markets catch cold. Well, now it's exactly the reverse. Right. If China sneezes, U.S. markets can catch cold, and that's really a very big change. We are speaking with Andrew W. Lowe, author of the book Adaptive Markets about the efficient market hypothesis and whether or not it is actually uh, whether it is actually still operative and whether you need a new hypothesis, the adaptive market hypothesis. We're going to continue with more right after this. Robert Half Research indicates nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Now you can enjoy podcasts from the Wall Street Journal on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, and the Google Play Music app, WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Money Beat. We're talking today with Andrew W. Lowe, author of the new book, Adaptive Markets. Actually, it's an extremely new book. It'll be out in May. We were lucky to get a couple copies here ahead of time. We feel very fortunate about that. We are joined also by our friend Jason Zweig, Wall Street Journal columnist uh, and author himself of several books, number of books, excellent books. You should go out there and buy them. And uh, Jason and Andrew, you guys actually go back a ways, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes, we do. Uh, uh, we probably first met something like 20 years ago, yeah. and I've, I've been following Andrew's work ever since. Uh, you know, one of, the, uh, one of the points I find most interesting to think about is that in the bull market that's uh, coming up on eight years old at this point, index funds have been a huge positive force. Um, but, Andrew, you have some concerns about – um, how index funds might sort of lead to a, 
sort of emotional consensus that could be destabilizing. You want to talk about that for a second? Sure. Well, I should first mention that, you know, in addition to the efficient markets hypothesis and the adaptive markets hypothesis, probably the most successful theory is Jack Bogle's cost matters hypothesis. (laughs) (laughs) The CMH. Exactly. I mean, I I think that Vanguard has been an unqualified success and has done more for individual investors than any other academic or theory or institution that I can think of. Vanguard's over $4 trillion right now. It's a pretty strong testament to its success. One of the implications of the adaptive markets hypothesis, though, is that success sometimes comes with unintended consequences. And in this case, one of the unintended consequences is that if we are all holding the same portfolio, then when that portfolio runs into a speed bump, we're all going to feel it. And if that speed bump is a big enough pothole, then actually it turns out that we're all going to react in the same way. So it could create market instabilities in extreme circumstances, and we just need to be aware of that. One of the things that biologists, particularly ecologists, talk about is biodiversity. The fact is that if you have lots of different species doing different things at different points in time, you're much less likely to cause a kind of a systemic crisis to any ecosystem. But if we're all doing the same thing at the same time, there could be some instabilities in store for us that we just need to worry about. Yeah, that reminds me of um, this really startling sort of physical image that I'm sure you remember from a few years ago, Andrew, when the uh, Millennium Bridge was built in London and they found that they hadn't properly accounted in an engineering way for the fact that as people walked across it, they would create sway and then the people walking across it would sense the sway and they would try to counteract their own motion and in the process they made the bridge sway more and more. Engineers were able to solve that problem. Is there some intervention that regulators could take that might somehow modulate the emotional consensus we might get in a downturn in index funds? Absolutely. And I think that's a great example. For anybody who hasn't seen the videotape of this bridge swaying, it's just really impressive that something that big and presumably that heavy could actually move around like that. So you're exactly right that the way that we can deal with it is exactly the way the engineers dealt with that situation. We need to calculate what the various different actions and reactions are of the different market participants and then come up with what I call adaptive regulation. Uh, It actually changes the kinds of risk incentives that investors and market participants have at different points in time in order to smooth out those kinds of sways. So what would that what would that yeah. look like? I'm sorry, Steve. Would that mean that maybe a really popular index fund should have to close to new investors or what other techniques might be effective? Well, a couple of other techniques might be for that index fund to beyond a certain point to start managing its risks more dynamically so that it doesn't create the kind of sways. Uh, In other words, think about a system where you calculate rolling volatility and as the index fund becomes more volatile, you start putting more of the funds in cash to reduce the exposure and when the volatility subsides, you put the money back in risky assets. So kind of a dynamic risk management component. That's one approach. Another approach is to change the amount of leverage in the system so that as investors become more and more enthusiastic about markets, we start dampening some of the extreme 
behaviors that market participants engage in. So basically taking away the punch bowl before the party really gets out of hand. I like, I mean, getting just more into the regulation, I I like the sort of idea that, you know, the markets are evolving, they're adapting, they're, you know, constantly changing. And so the regulatory regime, which will have impacts and cause them to evolve and adapt itself, should also evolve and adapt. Can can you talk about, you know, just that a little bit further? Sure. I think that's a very important aspect that is, I think, different from the way regulators are are currently approaching markets. You know, now when we engage in bank regulation and financial reform, we're imposing more stringent capital requirements on banks in order to reduce their risk. But that's what we're doing now. What happens in five years' time when business is booming and default rates are low and investors are clamoring for additional yield? My guess is that you know when the markets become more frothy and when investors are really looking to take on more risk, regulations will eventually become more lax and it will lead to deregulation at a certain point in time. That kind of waxing and waning of markets is really uh, going to affect the waxing and waning of regulation. We need to recognize it in advance and take that into account, even to the point of changing the way we regulate so that we bind ourselves to trying to smooth out some of these ups and downs. So I I think in order to do that, you really have to spend time documenting these kinds of effects. You have to be able to predict these kinds of waxing and waning and then figure out best ways of leaning against the wind in those circumstances. Um, also, the bond market. We talked a lot a few years ago about bond market like liquidity, and your Jason, your discussion just there made me think about that. Whereas one of the big concerns is that something could spark a lot of selling off in the bond market, and we and regula, regula, uh, regulation since the financial crisis has re, re, uh, removed some of the market makers. Uh, is 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 that sort of a, you know how much of an issue do you think that is? Is that one of your concerns? And it might not just be with bond markets, but generally speaking, in the markets. Well, that's a huge issue, and it really has to do with what we now call the shadow banking sector. Uh, we understand how banks work, and we can monitor stock markets, but for OTC markets, for corporate bonds, for securitized debt, for various kinds of collateralized loan obligations, it's much less transparent, and. We can't manage what we don't measure, and that's really the problem right now. We don't really measure a lot of these quantities and relationships, and so we're actually not able to even predict what the likely effects are of a particular market correction as it spreads across the different parts of the economy. You know, one really interesting contrast that I describe in the book is what happened to the hedge fund community uh, in 1998, when we had this big credit crisis and LTCM, Russia defaulted on its government debt. So long-term capital management. Exactly. Right, right. right. That created a huge amount of dislocation in fixed income markets, but that had really very little effect on equity markets, right? Well, you know, fast forward eight years, nine years to 2007 and 2008, and you had the same kind of a credit crisis hitting the mortgage-backed securities market. That had huge impact on equity markets, on foreign currency markets, on futures markets. It spread like wildfire. Why did it spread in one case where it didn't in another? I think that contrast tells you that the financial system is evolving in a very rapid way. Interconnections are developing that didn't exist even a decade before. And until we can pay attention to those interconnections, we're going to be constantly struggling with these kinds of issues. One of the things, one of the things that I, I think is sort of interesting when thinking about the, the concepts you talk about in the book and, and how they apply in in the real world to investors is, and the contrast between 
an adaptive market and, and this efficient market hypothesis is part of the reason I think index f- funds work, part of the reason I think why the efficient market hypothesis is, is stuck around so long and so strongly is that these are very comforting concepts to people who are, may not be market professionals, right? I mean, not, not that people are too stupid to understand the markets, but markets are very complicated if you're not a professional, if you're not doing it every day. If you're just a, a retail investor, it's, a, it's almost like a fairy tale, really. It's like a soothing fairy tale you tell ourselves. The, the markets are efficient. I should just put my money in it, forget about it, don't worry about it. It seems like what you're telling people is that is not exactly true and you need to do a little more homework. You need to be a little more you need to get yourself a little more savvy, but that isn't the easiest thing to do either. So what are you telling people to do? How are how does this book tell people how to manage their own uh, investments? That was my little counter that tells us we're probably running up on the, the, the end of the time. But we have to keep going because there's just too much to talk about Andrew W. Lowe, author of Adaptive Markets. Well, you know, I think that there are a couple of messages here. One is that I wrote the book for both individual investors as well as portfolio managers because I feel that we actually have to work together to deal with some of these issues. And you're absolutely right that the kind of traditional message, the fairy tale that you call, is what I call a narrative. Narrative is absolutely critical. It really drives behavior in ways that is very, very difficult to get around. And so what I'm trying to do with the book is to change people's narrative and to say that the traditional narrative of buy and hold and everything will work out in the long run, you know, that might be good advice if you can follow it. But that narrative really doesn't uh, take into account the fact that humans aren't going to follow that when markets are melting down. So when the stock market goes down by 20 or 30 percent, most investors are going to freak out. Mm-hmm. And if you're close to retiring, you'll freak out even more and most likely pull your money out of stocks and into bonds. And it's that freak out factor that we really have to manage. So the purpose of the book is to provide investors and portfolio managers with a new narrative for how to deal with the freak out factor in a somewhat more productive way. So, yeah, I mean, I guess the question, this was one I'm, I'm going to actually copy Jason because he asked it when we were talking before. Can this be used to manage money, the adaptive market uh, hypothesis? Well, not only can it be used, I believe it is being used in the sense that investors who are able to access new opportunities are going to earn more consistent returns than those who are unable to do so. So innovation, adaptation, and ultimately evolution are really keys to success and survival. So There are a number of practical aspects that I cover in the book, including managing your volatility more dynamically, focusing on market conditions and recognizing that the risk-reward ratio changes over time and across market conditions, and that you have to plan ahead and think about the end in order to figure out where you need to be now. So that whole process of changing the narrative from something more complex than 60-40 is really what Adaptive Markets is about. It's it's to give investors a, a broader framework to think about more sophisticated tools, but in a systematic and sensible manner. It's almost like uh, I remember Jason. You wrote a column several years ago now, talking about how investors should, in the back of your head, you should be prepared for the market to go down fifty percent. Mm-hmm. And and at the time you wrote that, I thought, wow, that is that's really a, kind of a, almost a crazy thing to walk around with, you know. But you, you were right about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And, and it seems like Andrew, what you're you're almost telling people, 
you need to be within the market. You you need to be a doomsday prepper almost. Like you need to be constantly thinking about what could go wrong and and have your bunker ready and have you know, like you can't just kind of walk day by day thinking everything's going to be perfect and I don't need to worry about the markets. Yeah, I think you need to hope for the best but prepare for the worst. Yeah, and I really that I think is the message in many different disciplines, not just in in finance, but uh, for example in healthcare. You know, you need to be sensible, eat right exercise, diet, and do all of the things that we now know are important for leading a good life other than uh, just eating and uh, you know, relaxing. I think the same can be said for, for financial health. We need to educate ourselves in thinking about all the different opportunities that are out there and then ultimately start to manage our money a little bit more proactively uh, to recognize our own frailties and risk, risk tolerance. Yeah, I was just going to say, Paul, you must be you, – you didn't need to read Jason's column. You've been walking around <laughs> waiting for doomsday for the last uh, 20 years. I, I am a doomsday prepper when it comes to markets, Andrew, actually. And zombies. And zombies, yes, yes. Um, any last questions, fellas? Yeah I, yeah, I I do have one quick one, Andrew, which is you talked about how sort of the, you know, the long-term buy and hold, stay the course approach – can be very difficult to stick to in bad times. But wouldn't the uh, the adaptive markets hypothesis be somewhat difficult to implement in good times? I mean, if I'm if I'm thinking along Paul's lines and maybe yours and saying I have to be prepared for anything and you know, risk varies over time and in my best analysis risk is high right now. I think the market is likely to go down over the next six months to a year. I'm going to change my asset allocation in response to that. I'm going to dial back stocks. I'm going to move some of that money into bonds and cash. And then the next thing I know, the market goes up 50% and I've stopped bragging at cocktail parties. (laughs) Uh, How much easier is it to go your way than Jack Bogle's way, I guess is what I'm asking. Well, you know, obviously, Jack Bogle's way and passive investing will continue to play an incredibly important role. So I'm certainly not arguing that we shouldn't be passive. But at the same time, what I think might ultimately end up happening is that passive investing will itself adapt. For example, right now, passive investing also means passive risk management, right? When you buy an index fund, there's no risk management. You just buy these securities and hope that they do well. And you know, if they don't, well, that's the way it goes. But actually, there's no reason why we have to couple the lack of, of active management with the lack of risk management. We can be passive on the one hand while actively managing risk on the other. That's an example where adaptive markets can tell you that you can add value to an investor by helping them to manage through the rocky shoals of market ups and downs so that they can actually be long-term investors despite the crazy short-run phenomenon that they're exposed to. All right. Uh, Andrew W. Lowe is professor at MIT's Sloan School of Management and author of the book Adaptive Markets. Andrew, I want to thank you for coming in today. Thank you. It was a really pleasure. appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, it was great. It was actually great. So thank you very much. Good luck with yeah. the book. Thank you. And everyone, thank you for listening. We'll catch up with you soon. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.